The title of our message today is This Will Keep You Out of Heaven and It's Not What You Think. Jesus talks about one of the main things that can stand in the way of us trusting him. We know to make it into heaven, we have to surrender our lives to him and we have to trust in him. But there's something else can, that can steal away that trust. Now, in this section in the book of Luke, we've had our last two and including this one, there are three things that happen, parables and this account that tell us about how to have eternal life. The first one was the, was the tax collector and the Pharisee. Remember the parable? And the tax collector beat his chest, wouldn't look up to heaven and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that God said that man is saved and not the Pharisee that bragged about all the things he was doing for God. And we talked about how you have to be contrite and broken before God in order to be saved. The next one was Jesus taking a child in front of them and saying, you must become like this child to enter the kingdom of heaven. So we talked about the ways that we have to become like children. What is it about children that Jesus said you've got to become like a child? And by the way, I'm glad that he didn't put a professor up and say, you've got to become like this professor to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because a lot of us would be like, I'm out. But all of us can become like a child. How trusting they are, how humble they are, how reliant they are on people around them. We talked about those things and more. Uh, so this parable is the rich young ruler who Jesus loves, one of the passages says, and who seems to be sincere about wanting to make sure he has eternal life. If you look at verse one, he asked Jesus, or verse 18, the first verse in our passage, he asked Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? If you look at Jesus's last statement in verse 29, which is the end of the, the text we're covering today, Jesus said, and they will receive eternal life. So those are the two brackets for this passage. We're talking about eternal life and more specifically, something that could get in the way, something that you might trust in rather than trusting in God. This is one of the most misunderstood passages. And I'm going to tell you of two groups that use passages out of this to try to, to show you a different way to heaven other than what the Bible says. They read this passage and they think, well, this is the way that you get into heaven. Jesus says it right here. And they're misunderstanding a couple of things in order to come to that place. So let's start. Verse 18. Now, a certain a ruler asked him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Matthew, Mark and Luke give this account. So when you combine them all together, there are certain things we learn from each one of them. We know that this guy is rich. We know that he is young and we know that he is part of the magistrate. This could be a regional magistrate. It could be a city magistrate. It could be the Sanhedrin out in Jerusalem. In this, in this part of, of Luke, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. In chapter 19, he rides in on the donkey into Jerusalem. And so this could be Jerusalem. We don't know much more about him but we do know those things about him. Look where he says, good teacher. This is an, an, an interesting phrase, good teacher. Nowhere else in the Bible is that phrase, those two phrases put together. They call people rabbis, but good teacher. And also in ancient writings, they haven't been able to find good teacher being brought together. 
So Jesus responds in an interesting way. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. Or no one is good, that is God. And so some have said, well, Jesus is denying his deity here because he calls him good and he says, I'm not good because only God is good. But that's not what it says. It says that he said, why do you call me good teacher? No one is good but God, which is the truth. And he's going to help us with the rest of this account. But the idea is that Jesus is good because he is God. I could spend the rest of our time defending from the Old and New Testament that Jesus is God. Somebody told me one time 20 years ago or so, uh, the Bible never says Jesus is God. To my response was, how much time do you have? Because let's start looking everywhere it says it. Let me just give you three of them. These are all in John. In John 5, 8, Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That's not just a statement of pre-existence. Abraham was at least 1,500 years before the time of Christ. And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. But the word I am is a play on God's name. I've learned recently that theologians do pretty much know it's Yahweh. There might be some slight variations, but they know that YHWH is Yahweh. And Yahweh literally means the existent one, I am that I am, or could be translated directly, I am. When Jesus was arrested in the garden, he said he walked out to meet him, which probably freaked him out because when you're looking for a criminal to arrest, they generally don't walk up and go, who are you looking for? And so Jesus said to them, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And, he, and they fell back on the ground at the power of the preexistent one saying, I am. The passage that told us that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Oh, you Bethlehem, Epaphrath, though you are small among the villages of Judah, out of you will come a ruler who will rule my people. This is Christmas passage, right? His days are from everlasting. That Old Testament passage says the ruler who would be born in Bethlehem would have his days from everlasting. In John 1, 1 and 1, 14, it says in the beginning was the word, that's the word logos in the Greek, and the word was with God and the word was God. And then in verse 14, it says this, and the logos became flesh. The word that is God in verse one, in chapter 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld the glory, the glory as the only begotten of the father, full of truth and grace. In John 1, 3, we're told that Jesus made everything. This is a really easy connection to him being God. What does Genesis 1, 1 say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now it says in John 1, 3, all things were made through him. The him here is the word, is Christ. All things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. Colossians 1 tells us that he is the express image of the living God and all things were made by him, for him and through him. We could go on. That's enough for us to understand that Jesus is not saying, I'm not good and I'm not God. He's saying to him, why are you calling me good? Only God is good. 
He's prying a little bit more, but he's also pointing out to him, you might not be able to judge what is good because he might not be all that good. Now we come to verse 20. So he's asking for eternal life, which means he is at least insecure about his eternity. What must I do to have eternal life? He wants to make sure he's got it. He might think he doesn't have it. Eternal life in the Hebrew mindset was not just the length of time. Sometimes people will get bored. They think I'm going to get bored in heaven. I'm going to be alive forever. Any of you guys see the good place where they just at the end decide, you know, I've, I've lived long enough. I'm just going to go get wiped out. It wasn't only the length of time in, in, in Hebrew, the Hebrew mindset. It was the quality of life. Eternal life is the quality and forever. We are going to be living this quality of life that is really unbelievable. This guy wants to make sure he has it. So Jesus says to him, you know, the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all of these things I have kept from my youth. Liar. The law was not given for us to keep. Paul said the law is weak in that it can't help you. We are given the Ten Commandments and we certainly should honor God. We certainly should not steal. We certainly should not bear false witness. But all of these things help us to understand I've already fallen short of God's standards. How many of you guys here are familiar with Ray Comfort? Give me a show of hands. All right, so Ray Comfort is a Calvary Chapel guy and he's got a, a ministry called The Way of the Master. He does a lot of things with Kurt Cameron. So you may know him and not really know that you know him by seeing some of the stuff that Kurt Cameron has done. And um, so he does this little thing where he goes out on the beach. And he's got a cute little dog with him and he rides his bike out there and he does interviews with people. And this is the way that he calls the way of the master. I have a little bit of an exception. I like Ray Comfort. All right, he's a Calvary guy. There's a lot we have in common. I have a couple of things that I don't like what he does, but I like this. So he'll go to people and say to them, um, you, can I interview you? And then he'll start the interview. Um, have you ever told a lie? And for the most part, people can say, yeah, sure. Lots of lies. And he says, well, what does that make you? And then they're a little hesitant. They're like, a liar? <laughs> and he says, have you ever stolen anything? And sometimes they say no. And he goes, when you were a kid, just anything. Have you ever stolen anything? A little pencil from somewhere? And they're like, yeah, I've stolen things before. He says, what does that make you? A thief? And then he says, have you ever blasphemed God's name? Have you used God's name in vain? Most people just say yes right away. And then he'll ask him, would you use your mother's name as a curse name? And they all say no. And then he says, then why would you use God's name as a curse name? And do you know what the Bible calls it when you use God's name in vain? They'll say, no, he says, that's blasphemy. Then he says, have you ever lusted after a woman or a man, depending on who he's interviewing? And almost all of them will say, yes, they'll be honest. But I did see one where the guy's standing next to his wife and Ray Comfort <laughs> says to him, this is really funny, says, have you ever lusted after a woman? The guy goes, no, <laughs> which is really hilarious. And uh, he pushed him a little more and the guy finally said, yes. And so he said, you know, Jesus said, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery with her. So then he says, I don't want to be mean, but you've told me you are a lying, 
blasphemy, blasphemer, adulterer at heart, thieving, and, and he gives a couple more. And then he says, heaven or hell, if you're judged by God, how are you going to be judged? That's a pretty good way to reach people. I don't like methods. I don't like when people say, when you share with people, this is how you do it. I like us to be led by the Spirit. And sometimes you need to get people to realize that they're not good. And that's a good way to do it. My problem is sometimes telling people they are lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterer is not the best way to win them for the kingdom of God. You might want to be led by the Spirit when you're doing it. But that's exactly what Jesus was doing. Jesus was showing him, you have fallen short. Paul, who was a Pharisee, which meant he memorized the law in the Old Testament. He knew all 613 commands in the Old Testament. Paul said, the law is good, but the law killed me. What did he mean by the law killed me? It showed me I fell short of God's standard. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, Therefore, you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And I remember as a young Christian reading that and thinking, this isn't the Old Testament. God wants me to be perfect. And I started attending a holiness movement church that said it was possible for me to still be alive and to be perfect. And I tried and didn't make it very long. And in fact, the Bible says, if anybody says, that, says they have no sin, they're a liar. All right. Now, in Matthew 5, 27, still talking about the Ten Commandments, showing us that God's standards and perfection and we've fallen short of it. It says, you have heard it said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if anyone looks at a woman and lusts after her, he already committed adultery. He goes on to say, if you're angry with your brother, you've murdered him in your heart which means you guys are driving around Tucson murdering people who pull out in front of you. And all of this is to show us our need. That's what Jesus was doing. Now, I have to bring this up. I have to spend time on it. I didn't used to. When I would teach this passage, I would just kind of say it and go on. But there are a group of people today that take this passage and say, what God wants is for you to keep the Ten Commandments. So if you don't keep them, then you're not going to be saved because he told the rich young ruler, you have to do these things. So I need to spend time showing you so that you don't run into these people later on that tell you, well, Jesus told them to keep the Ten Commandments, so you've got to keep the Ten Commandments. Well, yeah, we want to keep the Ten Commandments. We, we want to. And even the Sabbath day, because Jesus is our Sabbath, Hebrews chapter 4. Jesus is our sacrifice. He is the high priest. He fulfilled all of the law, and he is our Sabbath. Any of you who are weary and heavy laden, come unto me, and I will give you rest, Jesus said. So this next section is misunderstood as well. That's in verse 22. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Now, there's a group of churches that teach that this is telling you how to really be saved. That what we tell you about being saved is wrong. And if you really want to be saved, then you've got to sell all you have and follow them. Now, I don't know much about this organization, but I would like to find out where the money goes when people sell it. Is it sell all you've got and give it to us and you will be saved? And I, I, I think there's probably a pretty good chance that's the case. Jesus didn't say that. 
He said, sell all you have and distribute it to the poor. And then he said, you'll have treasure in heaven. He didn't say this is eternal life. He's telling him you'll have treasure in heaven. He wants to show him. In fact, he's giving him an opportunity to become a disciple. He had walked up to Peter and James and John mending nets and said, follow me. Leave your nets and follow me. It was the same kind of thing. They had a fishing business. They left their nets and they followed him. Now, it's harder when you have more money to give up everything and follow Jesus. But I've got to imagine that Matthew, the tax collector, had a lot of money, left it all and followed Jesus. And the rest of his life, the God, he took the gospel around the world. Jesus, we're told in another passage, loves this man. He's sincere. He's honest. He's not like the scribes and Pharisees who are hypocrites. This guy's honest. And Jesus loves him, the Bible says. And he says, sell all you've got and follow me. And, well, he has some problem, problems with that. Before we get to that, let me just go talk to you a little bit about invitations. Because there are people who say that you should not give invitations at a crusade, a concert, or church services for people to come to Christ. They say you're making false converts when you give invitations. And I want to show you from the Bible, here Jesus said, come follow me. What is that? That's an invitation. Jesus gave all kinds of invitations. Are you weary? Come unto me. Are you thirsty? Come and drink the water I give you. You'll never thirst again. Are you hungry? I'm the bread of life. I am the door. And he gave all kinds of invitations. In, in John 14, 13 and 14, Jesus said whoever, to the woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water I shall give him shall never thirst again. But the water that I give him shall become a fountain of water springing up unto everlasting life. He was inviting the woman at the well to drink of the water that he would bring. In 2 Corinthians 5, 20, it says, Now then, we are ambassadors of Christ. An ambassador does not represent the country he goes to. He represents the country he is from. You and I, the Bible says, are citizens of heaven and not citizens of this earth. We might have to deal with that. Some of us here may be too connected to the earth, but we are not citizens of earth. We represent heaven and we are ambassadors. And then it goes on to say, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. That's an invitation. We as ambassadors are to implore people to be reconciled to God. And so they say, well, there's a danger of making false conversions. Well, Jesus had a false conversion in Judas. Are we to throw the baby out with the bathwater? Are we to never give people a chance to get saved because someone's going to think I'm okay? We should be careful enough to let them know. It's not raising your hand. It's not saying a prayer. It is you inviting Christ in and living for him. Let me give you one more. Peter on the day of Pentecost had 3,000 people get saved. And he preached the first message to them filled with the Holy Spirit. How did those 3,000 people get saved? Did they all just go, okay, baptize us. We'll listen to what it says in Acts 2, 40 and 41. And, within, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved. 
from this perverse generation. That's an invitation. Be saved from this perverse generation. How dare Peter give people a chance to be saved? Then, though, then those who gladly received the word were baptized, and we should be as well. And that day about 3,000 people were added to Christ. Now I could go to more invitations. There's more of them in the Bible. I just want to say, and, and I love Ray Comfort. He's a Calvary Chapel guy. I love what he does. But he also talks down invitations. I think it's a mistake. The Bible is full of invitations. We ought to, I don't care how you give it. Give people a chance to get saved. It's extremely biblical. Now, what does the Bible say about eternal life? Uh, Jesus said, give everything you've got away and you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. In John 1:12, I quote this often, as many as receive him, he gives the right to become a child of God to those who believe in his name. This means you have to receive him. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. In their day, dining was fellowship. It was different than what we do. We have fellowship when we dine, but to them it was really important. We'll cover that later. In John 17, 2 and 3, Jesus is praying to the Father and Jesus says, as you have given authority, me, him authority, meaning himself, over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Salvation is not selling all of your possessions. Salvation is knowing God. Salvation is not selling all of your possessions. It's receiving him and inviting him in. I just have to cover these things because of this group that's going around teaching people now that you have to sell all your possessions in order to be saved, which would be easier for some of you. Some of you guys are like, I got 20 bucks to my name. That's it. There, I give it all. Welcome to heaven. Um, the third thing is that Jesus said, drink of the water that he gives. This is the woman at the well. I'm not going to read it again, but he gave that, that if you drink of the water I give you, out of you is going to gush, it's, it's going to come living water. It's going to spring up to eternal life. So when you come to Christ and take what he has for you, you are given eternal life. Now, what did the rich young ruler do? He heard, sell everything you've got and be my disciple. Come and follow me. And the come and follow me is how we are saved, right? We're following Christ. And when he heard this, this is verse 23, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. And the word for very rich there, by the way, is like, he's very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became sorrowful, he said, how hard is it for those that have riches to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, people try to play that down. They say Jesus wasn't talking about a needle and a camel because that would be impossible. He's talking about a small gate next to larger gates in the Middle East. And they, have, they were called the eye of a needle and getting a camel to get on its knees and bring it through the gate was very difficult. So what Jesus was saying was it's not impossible to be saved. He was saying it is very difficult to be saved. They want to water it down. But I don't think that's what he's saying because of the response of the disciples. They didn't go, well, then it's very hard to be saved. Listen to what they said. After Jesus said it's easier 
for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And those who heard it said, who then can be saved? It was possible to bring a camel through an eye of a needle, although as a gate, although that might be difficult. But they say, who then can be saved? And he said, these things are, are impossible with men, are possible with God. These things are impossible with men, but are possible with God. We're talking about the impossible. In other words, have you been born again? Have you received Christ? Has your life been transformed? You have had a miracle. It's impossible that you could be saved, but God has done it. God did the impossible in saving me and God has done the impossible to save you. But what Jesus is doing is helping us to understand that one of the main things that stands in the way of people making it into heaven is riches. Now, if I were teaching this message in West Africa, I don't think there would be much application. By the way, West Africa is one of the most impoverished areas on the planet. If I was teaching it there, I would be very hard for me to make an application. But America has somewhere around 6%. These are not exact numbers. Somewhere around 6% of the world's population and somewhere around 30% of the world's wealth. We hit the lottery by being in the United States. We have far more money than most people in the world. And I realize some of you guys are struggling financially and I, I recognize that. I'm talking collectively now. I'm not talking individually. So we've, we've hit the lottery, which means one of our problems is that we can trust in money rather than trusting in God. And the older we get, Warren Buffett said that, um, drawing a blank now, that compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. And so when you start putting away money when you're young, by the time you get older, it starts to accumulate. And I've got to tell you that as I was studying this yesterday, one of the last things I do before I get ready to start doing what I do on Wednesdays and, and Saturdays is I ride the bike for an, uh, an hour in my office. It just kind of helps me just get more settled down. And I'm listening to another teaching, not connected to this, but God just began to convict me about there was a time when I really struggled financially. I don't struggle financially now. And God really began to convict me. Are you trusting in your money? You're getting ready to tell, ask people, are you trusting in your money? Well, are you trusting in your money? Jesus said, don't worry about what you're going to eat, drink and wear. Your heavenly father knows what you need before you ask him. And if you're about God's business, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be given unto you. And you might feel like, well, you know, I'm OK. Jesus said, don't stack up treasure on earth, but stack it up in heaven because on earth moth can destroy because clothes were expensive in their day and you kept some of your value in clothes. A rust could come in and tear things apart so you would buy other things that could be rusted and thieves could come in and steal. So today, clothes is not that expensive for most of us. <laughs> you might be wearing something really expensive, but most of us, clothes are not expensive. I heard of a pastor that was wearing $20,000 shoes and I was like, where do you buy them? I don't even know where to buy them. <laughs> so clothes aren't expensive. Um, you might buy a car to hold value, like an old car you restored, and you, but you can fix rust today. 
Rust doesn't destroy things. You can fix anything that's been rusted, you can fix. And, um, and your money's in a bank, not in, under your mattress, I hope, <laughs> where thieves can't come in and steal it. And so you say, well, I feel pretty good. I've got my 403B. I've gotten with Fidelity. I've got some cash that we've developed over the years. Uh, I sold a business. I had a liquidity event. Uh, uh, yeah, a li uh, li liquidation event. Let me say it correctly. I've had a liquidation event. Most people in America will have two liquidation events throughout their lives. That's when, you know, someone dies and leaves you money or some event happens and you suddenly come into a good number of money. And you're like, well, I haven't ever had mine. Well, you're due, all right, for it to happen. So you've got money put away somewhere. You've got, it's in a bank account. It's in Fidelity. It's in TD Ameritrade. And so you start trusting in that. You look at your retirement and you're 64 years old and you think, I've got enough to retire. I'm going to be good. But are you really? I don't want to scare you. Kind of do. <laughs> but um, the uh, trucker crisis in Canada, one of the things they did was freeze the bank accounts of the truckers. You can be canceled on YouTube because of your political views. How long will it be before your political views will shut down your bank account so you can't give to whatever political party you're a part of? You, you think the internet can't be controlled by our government? What are they doing to the oligarchs in Russia today? They're shutting down their bank accounts they're seizing their yachts. I'm not saying it shouldn't be done, all right? I'm just telling you, you might not be as secure as you think. You might be trusting in money when you might not have access. What happens if the internet goes down? You're like, you're going too far now, Robert. <laughs> the internet's been around for 30 years. It's not gonna go down. Oh, pardon me. 30 years, by all means, it's established and will never go down. What if it's part of an attack? What if they want to cut us off from our money because of a war? What if they want to, to hurt the United States financially and they cut your money off? You say, well, I'm going to get my money out and hide it under my bed. Yeah, and then somebody hears about it and tortures you to find out where your money's at. Right? So we're right back to what Jesus said. Don't put your trust in money. I, I want to read you a couple things the Bible says about, about finances, and then I got to be done. Uh, number one, there's a problem with the love of money. This is 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say money is the root of evil, the love of money. People cannot even have money, just be in love with it and have money mess them up. They don't even get the benefits of money and money messes them up. It says, for, for which some have strayed from the faith. Some versions use shipwrecked in their faith. People's faith can be shipwrecked because of money. It says in their greediness and they've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. We could use examples of people who have won the lottery and lives fell apart when they did. Uh, you cannot serve God in money. And this is Matthew 6, 24. And I won't read it all. But Jesus says, if you love money, you won't love God. And if you love God, you won't love money. So do you love money? That's going to tell you a lot about whether or not you really love God.
You can't serve two masters, said Jesus and Bob Dylan. <laughs> Jesus is the more important one there. So what do you do if you're rich? What do you do if you have money? You might not even consider yourself rich because you've got enough retirement to, to, to take some out and to live comfortably. But what do you do if you have money? Here's what it says in 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 19. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. He doesn't say command them to give everything they've got to the poor and go follow Jesus. Command them in this present, who have money in this present age to not be haughty. The, the richer you get, the more prideful you can get. Nor trust in the uncertainty, in, uh, uh, in uncertain riches, and they still are uncertain. And I think I pointed that out. But in the living God. Trust in God. Your money may let you down. Inflation may eat it away. Your, your money could be worth half of what it is in five years if we're at a 10% inflation rate. I didn't want to scare you today. I'm just telling you. It says that God gives these things richly to enjoy, who gives us all things to enjoy. So God has given you the finances that you have to enjoy. That's good to know. So if you're enjoying the provisions God has given you, that's okay. But here's what he says. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works. Use the finances that you have to do good works. Be ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time that is to come that they may lay hold of eternal life. So Paul wrote to Timothy telling them, same thing Jesus said, money can get in the way to where you're starting to live for it now and you no longer love God. So be rich in good works. Know that God's given you things to enjoy, but do good, help those that are in need, be generous. Now, Peter is really funny. Peter realizes we did exactly what the rich young ruler wouldn't do. Well, Peter, did, he had a business, but he didn't, you know, he didn't have as much money as the rich young ruler. And so verse 28, Peter said, see, we have left all and followed you. Their salvation again, following Jesus and followed you. So he said to them, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house, parents or brothers or wives or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. That might be in missions. That might be in still going and doing some medical missionary work somewhere. It might be that you might die for Christ and leave your family and you wouldn't have died if you weren't a Christian for Christ. That's been throughout history. And then Jesus says, there's no one who's made these sacrifices who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. So know that if we do sacrifice, God is going to honor that. I'm going to close with this verse, Luke 6, 38, give and it will be given unto you. Press down a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will men give unto your bosom for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Those are the words of Jesus. He didn't tell us to give to appeal to our greed. Given it will be given to you, pressed down, shaken together, running over will men give unto your bosom. Okay, I'm going to go give because Jesus is going to give me more money. That's not why he told you that. He told you that so you would know it's okay for me to be generous. Help people you run into in need. Help the poor. Find ways to help someone who's struggling with something. Know that it's okay for you to do that because that's part of the reason God has given you your finances. And make sure you don't love money 
because it can keep you out of heaven. Because you can't love money and God at the same time. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the, the great wisdom in this account. We know that Jesus loved this rich young ruler, but he would not get rid of his money. He wouldn't trust in you rather than his money. And he could have been a disciple and how awesome that would have been. I pray that you would help us that we would not serve money, but we would serve you. That we would not trust in the uncertainty of riches, but we would trust in the certainty of our heavenly father who's never going to have anything stolen, who's never going to have his bank account frozen, who's never going to have anybody take away his provisions for being able to help us. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.